Oh my God, so much happened. Like we could fill a whole episode like just talking about this. I'm going to give you, you know, the Cliff's Notes version. So, I mean, it was really a whirlwind, but from the time I got to Bike Magazine to the time that I left Bike Magazine, I mean, I was like 25 years old. I got there as an intern and like a year later, almost to the day, I was the editor of the magazine. Welcome to Trail Effect. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. If you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, take a spin through our library and check out some of our previous episodes, which feature some great guests within the community of mountain biking and trails. For episode 62, we are featuring Rob Reed. Rob might be the most interesting journalist within the world of mountain biking and beyond. In this episode, Rob recounts his adventures throughout the last couple decades of writing for many publications, from Bike Magazine to Forbes, along with how he has pivoted from journalism to software development and back. Through all of this, Rob decided to make Park City, Utah the home for his family. We also go deep on why Park City might be the best mountain bike community in the United States. Rob is also the host of the Psychology FM podcast. Support for Trail Effect comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. If you like this podcast, tell a friend or a bunch of friends about this show. Also, please subscribe wherever you consume your podcasts. This will ensure that you always get the latest Trail Effect episodes, and it helps the podcast gain more traction, especially after relaunching on this new feed. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. Here we are today on Trail Effect. I have Rob Reed. Rob Reed is a journalist within the cycling industry, but he's also a journalist on a lot of other things as well. He talks about everything from Lamborghinis to overlanding and F-150s and a lot of other stuff. How's it going today, Rob? Uh, Josh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. So I'm going to take a cue from your podcast because Rob also has a handful of podcasts or a couple podcasts, both Psychology and Clicks to Bricks, I believe it's called. Yep. Yeah, we talk about marketing on that one. And on his, uh, on his cycling podcast, Psychology, he always asks his guests if they got out for a ride today. Absolutely, man. I mean, if you're going to do a podcast on cycling, I mean, when I thought about it, I'm like, that, that should be the first thing that every cycling podcast starts with. So I, I, I do appreciate that. But uh, I, did, I did an indoor ride today, um, so it wasn't, wasn't that exciting, but uh, things are actually going to get unseasonably warm coming into this weekend in Park City. So we'll definitely be outside for at least the next three days. And then, uh, you know, hopefully more of that because we're just, you know, starting spring here in Park City and uh, just hoping for the trails to dry out as soon as possible. Yeah, it's, we're definitely in that transition time of the year, at least uh, in the upper, upper part of the country that sees snow. Yeah, we didn't, I mean, we didn't get that much of it this year. so. 
unless we have like a crazy April, uh, you know, we'll probably be riding some dry dirt, you know, by, by May, hopefully. Yeah. Let's dig into the Rob Reed backstory. I know it, it starts with, uh, working at a, uh, bike shop with a guy that's also been on this guest known as Chris Caber in Tucson, Arizona. And then you guys got into Arizona off-road adventures. And when I had Chris on, he, uh, he quickly took a turn that I didn't see coming with Arizona off-road adventures and how you guys had a business plan to get into bike magazine. So let's, let's get back into those days. Yeah. I mean, that's, I really fell in love with mountain biking in Tucson. Uh, even, you know, before I met Chris, I had, um, you know, when I was a senior in high school in Connecticut, uh, you know, I got a mountain bike and started kind of mountain biking that summer between, uh, you know, uh, before freshman year and, um, you know, in and around kind of like New Haven and, you know, just, I immediately fell in love with, with the sport and, and I was a skier at the time. And I remember, you know, on this like, you know, janky $200 Fuji mountain bike going out and riding hiking trails of course because that's all there really were and and thinking like man this is this is like skiing moguls you know on a bike you know like because that's that's what we were into at the time and so it was just all about like you know suffering to get to the top of the climb no helmet you know like not, not no safety gear at all flat you know i think we might have had like the toe clips uh, at the time, which I'm, you know, are, are probably so unsafe, you know, versus flats. And yeah, we would just like bomb down hills and, and it, it just, it just felt amazing. So when I got out to Tucson, uh, when I went out to university of Arizona, you know, we were like, wow, there's gotta be mountain biking around here and just started exploring. And, you know, that's where I was like, this, you know, I, I really want to do this. Like, um, as a, as a major part of my life, it was pretty, pretty clear that that's what I wanted to do. And so got a job at a bike shop, good old, uh, bargain basement bikes. The only, <laughs> the only shop that would just kind of like hire some random person, uh, you know, uh, to, to come in and work while I was going to, going to school and stuff, met Keeb and yeah, that's, that was kind of the foundation. If I remember right, listening to both his interview that we did together, but then also he did an interview with you, you two were on the path to figure out how you could get paid to ride your mountain bikes. Yeah. I mean, that was the dream for, for us. And I think for a lot of people back then, you know, the industry really wasn't that big at the time. It was just getting going. And of course, like, you know, I think everybody just started racing, you know, that was, that was what you did. And we were like, well, maybe, you know, I don't think, I don't think Chris ever thought about like becoming a pro. Uh, it's just definitely not part of his character, but you know, be me being kind of like very a type, probably overly ambitious. I was like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, become a pro at this and kind of, you know, realize at a certain point that that probably wasn't viable. So plan B was, okay, maybe we can be tour guides and show people around, um, you know, Arizona mountain biking. And so, yeah, so we, started started a company you know it was my first kind of entrepreneurial exploration i guess like i you know i didn't go to school for business went to school for philosophy and uh so we we were just kind of figuring out as we went along but yeah that was that was the core motivation like get paid to ride your bike 
Yeah, and it sounds like you two both came from the East Coast as well to Arizona. Yeah, there was a lot, lot of people in at U of A were were from the East Coast. It was uh, definitely a welcome change of climate <laughs> from the Northeast. Well, let's dig into uh, how Arizona Off Road Adventures transitioned into a journalism career with Bike Magazine at the beginning of Bike Magazine, pretty much. Yeah, I guess you know I, I kind of found pretty quickly actually that I was not a very I wasn't really suited to mountain bike guiding per se. Um, I guess, you know, like again, like we, it was a perfect partnership with me and Chris. I mean, we are, we are like best friends for life, but we are very different personalities. And uh, so Chris is like the best mountain bike guide. You've probably like, you know, one of the best ever, you know, if there was a mountain bike guide hall of fame, he'd probably be like, one of the first inductees, you know, into that because he's done so much of it with it. And, and he's so freaking good at it because he's just really good with people. You know, that's kind of like one of his superpowers. Me, you know, admittedly, you know, I'm, I'm more of an, more of an introvert, you know? So, but, um, I did know how to write pretty well. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed writing our, our catalog and, and I enjoyed kind of trying to get us press in the bike magazines. So kind of like I gravitated toward like the marketing aspect of, of the business. And that led us to getting Rob Story from Bike Magazine to come out and do a bike tour with us with a bunch of, you know, our friends. And, uh, you know, and, and he did the story on it. And so that's how I met Rob. And then there just came a certain point where I was like, you know, this, this you know, Tucson, I don't think is for me long term. and I don't think this bike touring thing is for me. So, you know what, I'm going to go to, you know, San Juan Capistrano and be an intern for bike and just kind of see where that takes me. I might, I might come back, you know, I might find out that's not for me and come back and we can keep building this business or, or see where we take it. But I didn't come back. I, um, you know, I, I definitely stayed there and um stayed with bike magazine and that was that was pretty much a you know pretty pivotal you know time in just my life and career going from tucson out to california this brings me to the inappropriate question by chris gaber <laughs> jesus <laughs> so what's that what happened at sea otter when he took the <laughs> bike magazine rv there <laughs> Oh my God. So much happened. Like we could fill a whole episode, like just talking about this. I'm going to give you, you know, the Cliff's Notes version. So, I mean, it was really a whirlwind, but from the time I got to Bike Magazine to the time that I left Bike Magazine, I mean, I was like 25 years old. I got there as an intern and like a year later, almost to the day, I was the editor of the magazine. Like, because the company got bought by this bigger publisher. They fired the editor and the publisher of Bike and Powder. And they were basically like, you know, okay, who wants to be editor, you know? And of course I raised my hand. I'm like, that, that should be me. And they were like, okay. And I had never, you know, I had been there a year as an, as an intern and then like an associate editor. But, you know, I, I was like, you know, most of the staff was older than me and had been there for, for years. So all of a sudden I'm in charge of this magazine. It's just like a dream job. I was just like, you know, I was like a pig and shit. I'm like, this is awesome. And, um, 
but you know, there was also so much things were just going nuts at the magazine. Like we didn't have any advertisers. So like the first issue that we did as editor, like I had to fill the entire magazine with editorial because we basically didn't have any ads, right? Which was like a huge undertaking for itself. And, you know, I was at the office all day, every day, like, you know, I'd basically go home, go to sleep, wake up, come back, you know, rinse and repeat. So that was like the fall of 98. And then um, things started to go really well coming into 99. And, but we really didn't make plans for sea otter. So our, you know, we kind of had to figure out a place to stay for the whole staff. You know, we were going to go, um, but you know, all the hotels and everything were booked. So like you said, we, we actually ended up renting two 40 foot RVs for the entire staff, like the editorial and, and I think mostly the editorial side of it and drove those up from Orange County up to Monterey. And let's see, <laughs> then we start getting into the, you know, the crazy part of it. Cause, um, we go out the first night and, you know, drink a lot of tequila. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, I'm just like, it's, it's all expensive. Who cares? Right. You know? So yeah, just keep, keep bringing the Patron and, uh, cut to the next morning. I pretty much blacked out and, uh, woke up and Chris is going to appreciate that. At least I'm telling a little bit more of this story than I've had previously. So. I basically had to ask, like, I don't know, my art director or somebody like, what the hell happened? And, and he told me and, um, you know, apparently I had tried to kind of organize a bachelor party for one of the staff members who was who was getting married. And that went pretty sideways. Uh, again, I had really no recollection <laughs> of what had happened, but I could tell that I had fucked up pretty bad. And uh, so. Um, Fortunately, my uh, good, good friend of mine from LA was also there and, uh, and we were going to be doing the single speed race like the next day. And so he basically rescues me. My whole staff just is like, you know, kind of just like, holy shit, like what just happened? And, uh, again, like, I don't, I don't really actually know exactly what happened. I just got, you know, small details, but, uh, so he gets me out of the RV and away from everybody. And uh, we go and do the single speed race and we poach it, of course, because I was like against, you know, buying a normal license at the time. And so that didn't also didn't go over very well. Um, so I get back to the office and uh, I guess, you know, what, um, one way to look at it is they were basically like, look, if, if, if you want to be Hunter S. Thompson, uh, it's probably better to be a freelancer than the editor of the magazine. So um, they, they invited me to leave as, as editor. And uh, so then I went out and, and did a bunch of great stories. I did the, the Grand Canyon with Chris, the North Rim. We did that one like that summer. I did the Cocopelli Trail. Um, I did this couch surfing story in Colorado where... Uh, the pitch was basically, I'm going to go to Vail, uh, Durango, Steamboat, and Crested Butte, and I'm going to sleep on my friend's couches, and um, I'm going to do a critical review of each couch. Like I'm going to photograph it and, and write about it like a bike review. 
Um, and then I'm going to write about like where we, where we rode. So they're like, yeah, go, go do all that. Like, um, probably not, not best at this point anyway, since you offended your entire staff, uh, to, to keep you here at the magazine. So yeah, that, that's what happened at, at bike magazine. And then I started freelancing from there. <laughs> that perfectly sets me up into the next part of the interview, which is the transition out of bike magazine, which I didn't have any idea that was the transition out, but Chris set that one up perfectly into freelancing, which eventually, so it's, what's funny here, and we're going to get to this in a bit, but I'm, I'm listening to the story about bike magazine. I'm listening to the story about an in-depth review of couches. And at the same time, I know that you're writing for Forbes magazine now, and that's such a drastically different audience and type of writing, I'm guessing. Well, here's, here's another thing that, that <laughs> here's another thing that pissed Spike off at the time. So, um, uh, I had heard about this adventure racing team. Remember when like adventure racing kind of was like really big toward the late nineties into two thousands. And so there was this actual team of playboy playmates who were, <laughs> who were doing adventure races. You know, and they were like, you know, there'd be like a running portion and a mountain biking portion and this and that. And, and I think it was my, my, uh, my contact at GT, Steve Blick, who was um, supporting them. Like, I think might have, might have been providing them with bikes or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's, that's awesome. Like, how about, I mean, if you're going to do a women's mountain bike clothing review, like who better to model, you know, the clothing than the, you know, Playboy Playmate Xterra team. You know, I thought that was a great idea. So, you know, I call up all the, well, I don't, I don't know. I think I had, I had an associate editor call up all the women's, all the clothing companies that made women's mountain bike apparel, which was also kind of new at the time, like really making it like specifically for women. And, uh, you know, got a bunch of clothing in. And had these playmates come into the office, you know, which, you know, that alone caused a little bit of a stir. And then had the, the photo editor, David Reddick, do the photo shoot and with me. And, you know, they're like trying on all the clothing. And yeah, I can just, I can still remember the look on, on Reddick's face <laughs> when we were doing the photo shoot. And, uh, but they were awesome, man. I mean, come on. And uh, I mean, they were really cool in addition to being, you know, beautiful and so we did, we, we got that and it's like in the can, it's like ready to go. And that was another thing they got pissed about for whatever reason. They, they thought that was inappropriate or in bad taste or whatever. So then I leave the magazine and like four issues later, it runs and it becomes like hugely successful as, as, an, as an article, as a, as a piece. Like everybody loved it. The readers loved it. The, you know, the, the, the female readers even, even loved it. Um, so that, that was, there was some, there was an interesting time there. Well, that was an era in journalism or magazine journalism when Maxim was huge, you know, men's, men's health was exactly. huge. I mean, that whole, you know, and, yeah. and that was, I mean, it's different than what you have today, but that just highlights that you were like thinking outside of the box, but knowing what your reader would want to read and look at. Yeah, on both sides, right? Like, you know, male or female. I I think it worked at, at the time. Uh, and and again, like if you had just been like, hey, we're gonna get some random Playboy playmates to do a women's mountain bike clothing review, that would that would definitely be in in bad taste at any time. 
you know, but like, I mean, they were actually out there doing adventure races and they were like, um, you know, doing well, taking it seriously. And so, you know, I thought, yeah, let, let's, let's give them some, let's give them some press. They're doing and on it. top of that. Like you just said, there wasn't much out there for women's clothing. And that was definitely an avenue that needed to be showcased because it's an avenue as we've seen now that has gotten way stronger because I've had a lot of women on this podcast. And the whole reason is, is because I, I believe that we need to have more women in mountain biking. I, I have two daughters myself, you know, and I, it's just, a, it's an aspect or an area that we need to keep pushing in a tasteful way. Obviously the more women we can get involved, the better the whole, the whole activity is. Well, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, cycling and snowboarding are my two main sports. And, you know, I take a, I take a lot of pride in the fact that they were both really came of age in the nineties and they, and, and because of that, they came of age at a time when, when equality was kind of built in, you know, there were, you know, I think Burton like had equal prize money for, for men and women from the very start, you know, in those, in those snowboarding events and in, in, in mountain biking, like, you know, like I, when I was at university of Arizona, you know, like our, our, our hero, like I, I was basically like, Chris and I were kind of like, almost like part of a mountain bike fraternity that was kind of centered around my house. And, uh, you know, it was my roommates and all of our friends and, you know, we'd get together for group rides. Like the person that we idolized was Julie Furtado. You know, it wasn't John Tomac. It wasn't Ned Overend. Like we idolized Julie Furtado because because she was just insanely dominant, you know, in, in her sport and, and just the way that she won. So like, you know, from that time, yeah, I, I think, I think women have just had uh, a, a major part of the sport of mountain biking from the very beginning. And, you know, there are many sports now that, that can actually say that. Oh, for sure. And, and Julie Furtado was a, she was a legit badass. Yeah. She paved the way. You brought up snowboarding, and so we're gonna we're gonna quick detour because that's another area that you've written about. And it's funny when I came across you via Chris via podcasting, I was reading your your bio and your or your about section on on your cycling podcast, Psychology FM, and I saw that you wrote a book called The Way of the Snowboarder. And in my mind, I'm going, man, that's that book is like super familiar to me. Like, why does that stick out? Right. And so I ran downstairs into my bookshelf in my living room and I was like, holy shit, I have that book, you know? And it was gifted to me by my mother at, at Christmas, you know? And I remember like the, when I got that book in this book, just for the, and you'll do a better job explaining this, but this book really highlights a lot of the really high end personalities in snowboarding at that time. And kind of the people that paved the way for what snowboarding is today. And like, I am, cause I was into mountain biking and I was just getting into snowboarding cause I'd, I'd been a skier as well. I immediately was like, oh, there's an article on Sean Palmer in here. <laughs> so I went right to Sean to read about Sean Palmer because of his ties at the time with downhill mountain bike racing and obviously in snowboarding, you know? So let's talk about kind of how you got from where you were with bike to freelancing and then going into writing a book way of the snowboarder. Sure. Yeah. Like, you know, I was, uh, of course, like the, the staff at bike was, was shared with powder and vice versa. So, you know, when I was an editor for bike, I was also an editor for powder. That's just the way it worked. And I had been a skier, um, growing up, but, um, you know, since going to, to, to Tucson, 
hadn't done a lot of skiing and it had been all mountain biking. That's why I was there. I was really there for bike, but you know, I had to just contribute to powder because of the, you know, the way the staff was set up. So, you know, I effectively became a ski journalist at the same time and uh, started doing that. But I was also starting to kind of lean snowboarding a little bit, um, you know, cause I also like Chris, you know, like had, had a skateboarding background from, from high school. And uh, then that after my departure from bike and powder, uh, I actually moved to Mammoth, California, Mammoth Lakes for a season. Uh, because again, I'd never lived in a, in a ski town for, for a ski season before. So, and Chris moved with me too. He, he relocated there. So we spent the 99, 2000 season up in Mammoth. And that's when I really got into snowboarding and really like, and it really clicked for me as soon as I had like my first powder day on a snowboard, I was like, oh man. And I mean, skis were starting to get fat and starting to get shaped around that time. But like that feeling of of surfing snow, which you can get today on skis for sure. Back then you really couldn't, but on a snowboard, oh my God, it was just, uh, it was just, you know, a revelation. I was like, yeah, this is what I need to be doing. But um, the kind of the the opportunities for snowboarding journalists like really weren't weren't that apparent at the time. I mean, snowboarding was still a really young sport. Um, like Snowboarder magazine didn't do like long kind of journalistic features. You know, it was mostly just photos and you know captions. <laughs> it was like the whole magazine it was just just that. It wasn't like like real journalism like. Yeah, you know, like really real storytelling. Um, so I was kind of like, I kind of had a corner on that market in, in, a, in a sense. So when the publisher who'd done The Way of the Surfer was looking for, you know, a writer to do the, way, the snowboarding version, uh, they found their way to me through, you know, a couple editors. And uh, I was like, yeah, I would love, love to take on that project. So it was, you know, kind of a, um, you know, I got hired essentially to, to write the book and, and it followed a format, you know, the, the surfing version had the same format. It was like 10 or so of the most influential people in the history up to that point with some essays in between. And, uh, yeah, so I got to go, you know, the highlight of that was, was my first Alaska heli skiing trip where I profiled Tom Burt. I know I've since gone back there with Chris actually, uh, in 2000, 15, we went up there to Haines, Alaska. Um, and then I went there in 2020, like right before the pandemic hit or as the pandemic was hitting. I saw, I interviewed Sean White when he was at the US Open in Stratton when he was, you know, this was 2004, I guess. So it was still two years before he'd won his first gold medal at the Torino Olympics. And now, you know, this is just this past Olympics, he retired with four gold medals or something like that. Like, you know, definitely the most successful snowboarder, um, you know, in Olympic history, you know, Terrier interviewed him. I, 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 I just had happened to have ridden with Craig Kelly, uh, the season before he tragically, you know, died in an avalanche and used that. I, I just, I don't even know if I had the, the assignment to write the book. I was just doing that. And then got the assignment and, you know, it worked out that I, I was fortunate enough to ride with, you know, the greatest snowboarder of all time, I would say, you know, I think Sean White's the winningest for sure, but like nobody will ever be better than Craig Kelly. 
that's, you know, that's, that was just a really good era for action sports because there's so many new things happening. So many new things happening with mountain biking. So many new things happening with, with snowboarding. You know, the X games were huge. I mean, they're still a thing, but I don't think they're as big as they were then, you know? And I mean, that was back when mountain biking was in winter X. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've actually like the psychology podcast, you know, is, is very much like a, almost like a love letter to the nineties in in many ways, you know, I mean, I, I think the nineties was the best decade in the history of mankind, right? Like, I mean, you had mountain biking come up, you had snowboarding come up, you had the internet come up, you know, it was, it was an era of peace and prosperity. The music was, was amazing. You know, the dead at least toured for like the first five years before Jerry passed. You had the grunge movement, you had alternative, you know, I still listen to all of that music today. I mean, I'm the older I get, the more I really appreciate how, how amazing the nineties was. Yeah, for sure. And, and I can appreciate that while I'm a few years younger than you. I still like, I mean, I started mountain biking around 1990 and it was awesome. Speaking of that, let's detour back into your, uh, your freelance journalism days. Do you have any good stories of any personalities you've had? You've had some really awesome personalities on your psychology podcast. Do you have any good stories that you'd like to share on this podcast of people you were able to meet and profile back during that era? You know, I mean, I just have to say, like, again, the, the, the journalism, I love to write and, and, it's, and it's like a, it's kind of a talent that I feel like I was born with, but it, it just kind of like with the mountain bike touring company, you know, it, it, like I didn't want to start a mountain bike touring company. I wanted to get paid to ride my bike. And you know, I'm not a, I'm not a hard hitting, you know, investigative journalist. You know, I'm not reporting on like wars and, you know, things that actually matter. You know, it, it was, it was, a you know, it's all pretty much been a means to an end for, for the kind of lifestyle that I want to have. And so, you know, that started with mountain biking and then skiing and then snowboarding. And, and then, uh, I, I ended up actually writing a freelance article for Complex Magazine about the best downhill bikes. This was in like, I think 99 when Complex was like a brand new magazine. It's like a, it's like a um, urban hip hop, you know, fashion magazine. So I wrote, I wrote that. And then I said, how about like, how about the same treatment, but for like, you know, high-end SUVs, because like the, the, Cadillac Escalade and the Lincoln Navigator had just come out and the Hummer was big. I'm like, how would I do that? And they were like, yeah, we'd love that. Like do that, you know? And that's what a lot of like the rappers at the time were like driving these like, you know, styled out SUVs. They had kind of come the, the, you know, the, the, the cool vehicle of the time. And uh, so I called, you know, I called up Lexus and I called up, you know, Cadillac and so forth. And I'm like, Hey, can you, I'm doing this story for complex, you know, can you send me the press materials, you know, on this vehicle or whatever? And they're like, yeah, we'd be happy to. And, and when can we schedule the test drive? And I'm like, really? I'm like, I'm like, do you know who you're talking to? Like you, you really want to give me like an $80,000 car to go test drive? Like, um, I didn't even know that was a thing. And they're like, yeah, you know, we'll, you know, you can pick it up here and, you know, have it for a week. And like, of course, like immediately called all my friends. I'm like, you would not believe what I'm about to do. And so it was like, 
you know, the Lexus and then the Hummer. And then, you know, and, and for week after week after week, I was like driving these like crazy new cars again. I'm like probably 26 or 27 at this point. And, uh, you know, we just go out with my friends and, and, and party in these things that just like, then I drove basically a new car every week from like, you know, 99 until about 2006. Like it was just, (laughs) it was just this, you know, over and over and over. And I was writing for, you know, all the different lifestyle magazines, like stuff and some snowboarding magazines and men's journal, what have you. And, uh, but yeah, it was just enabling me to, to do really cool stuff. And, uh, then, then there came a point where I realized like you, you can't actually, you know, earn, earn a very good living doing that. You could have a great lifestyle. And I really enjoyed the lifestyle aspect of it for sure. But, um, I needed to, I needed to think about something different if I actually, actually, you know, wanted to, to make a stable living. You're getting the whole story here. <laughs> You took a really hard left into the software industry after riding or drive, riding about and driving Escalades and Hummers and everything else that was available at that time for Complex Magazine. Yeah, well, the, the, for sure. Yeah, like I, I had to figure out, you know, where I could apply my skills and, and what would also be fulfilling, you know, because I, even though I felt like I needed to make a living, I, you know, money for its own sake is definitely not something that, that motivates me. You know, that's not going to get me up every day. So, you know, I mean, but it was, but it was also in a way like, you know, I want to be able to, you know, earn enough money so that I can do the things that I want to do without having to, you know, write about them um, in order to do it. You know, I wanted to be able to ride bikes and snowboard and travel, you know, on my own volition. So, yeah, I, so I, I, you know, worked for a couple of different companies and, and had a blog and got really deep into social media kind of in the, you know, the late 2000s. You know, I was I, I became kind of an early adopter of this new trend of social media when at a time when we were like, you know, people were still asking, like, should we really call it social media? You know, there was actually a debate of whether or not that was even the right term for what Twitter was and what MySpace was and what and what marketing through those was um right so i was kind of like early to that and kind of figured out you know the impact that it would have on society on marketing and uh and then um then mobile like you know smartphones came out in you know 07 officially but they really started getting traction around 09 and then foursquare came out and that was like kind of the first social media app that was like built specifically for smartphones and for the real world. And that gave me the insight to start a technology company that was essentially a a new technology for brick and mortar retail brands like your Starbucks and Walmarts and McDonald's of the world that were going to need, you know, a marketing platform designed specifically for their needs to leverage Facebook, Google, Instagram, Twitter, Yelp, et cetera. So I started this company called Moment Feed that was pretty much, you know, an all-in-one solution for uh, marketing if you have, you know, more than, you know, 50 locations. Yeah, so that's what I started that in 2010. But, you know, I think the, 
you know, one, one of the also kind of key threads there was that like social media was about content, you know, and it was, you know, I think uh, an extension of my background in journalism for sure. Yeah. And I remember a funny parallel here too. Like I was, this is way, this is back in the mid two thousands. I had a, I remember I had a blog spot page myself. Yeah. Everybody needed a blog back then and, and really kind of podcasts are, are the new blogs. So now, now everybody, you know, there, there are a lot of podcasts, but the good news also is that like, if you look at the number of blogs and the number of YouTube channels, they still dwarf the number of podcasts. So if you think like there's too many podcasts or, or that market is saturated, it's far from it. You know, there's still tons of growth left in podcasting. It's just really about finding, you know, a, a good niche and a, and having a good voice and, and point of view. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, with podcasting and you'd know this, you know, as good as anybody at this point, since you do have two podcasts, seems like a lot of people get podcast burnout around episode seven. And so while there's a lot of podcasts out there, they don't go very far usually. So if you can, if you can hold on for the long haul and eventually, in, you know, and grow your craft and continue to get better content, yeah, you probably have a good chance. Yeah. It might look like there's a lot of competition out there, but they, they just might not have the, the staying power. So you just need to need to be committed to it. You need to be patient um, and persistent, you know, and you'll, you'll find success for sure. Yeah. Well, let's transition back into how you, at some point you got out of moment feed and then you got back into journalism with Forbes and with, I believe Huffington post and maybe some other stuff as well. Yeah. So actually like during, during the time I was at moment feed, again, I, I was kind of continuing to kind of use my journalism background to, to write about the space that, that moment feed was in, you know, uh, marketing and multi-location marketing and social media marketing. So I was like, you know, trying to be a thought leader to support my company and to, you know, help, help to sell the software. So, you know, a lot of the, and this was at a time when like the, these platforms like Huffington post would start to open up the platform to contributors to essentially write for free and, you know, which obviously, you know, is not good for, for the, the craft of journalism, um, you know, obviously drives down prices if there's, you know, high quality journalists that are willing to write for free, but that's really what was, what was happening because, you know, we were writing, we had a, we had an ulterior objective, like we were trying to get the message for our company out um, in exchange for writing good quality, you know, content that, you know, wasn't even, wasn't promotional, but like you'd kind of get the benefit of your byline. So that's where I started writing for Huffington Post. And then eventually for Forbes, it was writing more about marketing. And then as I left, I transitioned out of my day-to-day role at Moment Feed in 2016 and uh, moved from LA up to Park City. And, uh, you know, then Huffington Post kind of killed their contributor platform. And so I asked my editor at Forbes, who is, you know, on the CMO network channel, if they'd introduce me to the lifestyle side, because um, I think I was, I was, I had just gotten back from Africa. I did this like African safari with my family. And I'm like, you know, I'd like to start writing for Forbes life about these other topics that are kind of in my, you know, earlier part of my career. And uh, they were open to it. And so, yeah, my first story was about, um, you know, t- taking a family on safari in Africa. That was in 
2018, I guess. And so, yeah, and then I've had the column at Forbes, which again is, you know, it is, it is a paid deal. It's, it's, it's not a lot of money, but, uh, you know, it keeps me doing what I really love. And, you know, I just, I, I love to write and I love to tell these stories. I love to cover the things that, that I really am passionate about, mountain biking, cycling in general, snowboarding, cars, travel, you know, and, um, and, you know, I guess, I guess I'm kind of good at it. Yeah. And it kind of, and this is definitely detouring again. This was, I knew this interview was going to be all over the place, but one thing I didn't know was you getting new SUVs and stuff when you were riding in your earlier years. And now if you go look at some of your most recent work, you're writing about Lamborghinis and overlanding in an F-150 Raptor, you know, so it's kind of come full circle. Yeah, it really, it really did. I think, uh, yeah, that, that started with kind of getting in with the Forbes life thing. And, you know, obviously, like, you know, obviously like the Forbes reader is, is going to be a higher end reader, um, you know, than you know, bike magazine or, or bicycling, you know, it's obviously, it's a high, higher income demographic. And, uh, so, you know, the, the thing about the, the cars is that, you know, every manufacturer has a, has a press fleet of vehicles and they're pretty highly concentrated in LA and New York. They've got them in some other cities, but, but they don't have one in Salt Lake. Certainly don't have one in Park City. So, but I would still go back and forth to LA on a regular basis for various reasons. Sometimes it's just to get out of the cold and go do some, some riding. So I kind of go there to ride. And then, so the way it works is you work with the manufacturer to set up this press loan and then they have the car waiting at like, you know, one of the, you know, one of the, the long-term parking places, like a parking spot or something like that at the airport. So I get to pick up the car generally at the airport, drive it for the week and then drop it back off at the airport when I'm done. Or in the case of some of the higher end cars, they prefer to actually like truck them out and deliver them like to your house. So that, that, that happens often. That's, that's what happened with that Lamborghini. And so like, yeah, when I go to LA, I'll, I'll do that. And, uh, but then like when the pandemic hit and I wasn't going to LA and I couldn't review, you know, new cars, I just decided to, you know, well, for a number of reasons, I, I decided to buy a Raptor. And then um, the story there was like, you know, when you get a Raptor, like, what do you do to it? Because I mean, they're, they're fantastic vehicles stock, but there's this massive aftermarket, you know, that, that supports that model. And it can be, you know, dizzying for somebody to try to figure out. I mean, it took me, you know, hours and hours of research to figure out what was the best and spending time on the message boards. You know, so yeah, I did a, I did a story about like how to upgrade the ten best upgrades for the for the Ford Raptor, and then more recently I did like you know how do you set up the Ford Raptor for overlanding, which is something that I got into because of the pandemic because you know nobody was you know getting on planes, so and and we live in Utah so there's just plenty of opportunity for that. Yeah, and we're gonna now that we're talking about Utah again, we're gonna go back to that, which is really Park City and. It seems like you made the conscious decision to move from Southern California to Park City for mountain biking. Am I wrong with saying that? Uh, yes, selfishly, that was the that was the <laughs> uh, that was the reason that we didn't talk about very much <laughs> with my family. No, I mean because it, it was like 
Um, number one reason I wanted my kids to grow up in a small town, ideally a, a, a ski town. Like it does, it's always been my dream, you know? And I, and I just, I just think that that's the ideal. Like if you can grow up in a ski town, that's as good as it gets, in my opinion. Like I didn't get to do that. I grew up in a small town in Connecticut and, you know, we would drive up to Vermont, you know, to go skiing and stuff like that. But yeah, if you're, if you can grow up in a ski town, man, like that's, that's it. So like, that was really kind of like the main reason I wanted to get my family out of LA and into the mountains. But, uh, you know, it was, my wife wasn't necessarily open to it. She had grew, you know, kind of born and raised in, in LA. And so it was a bit of a, of a sales process. It took me about 10 years actually to get my wife to finally agree to move to Park City on a 12 month trial basis. So it was like, look, we're just gonna, we're gonna rent a house. And after 12 months, if you don't like it, we're moving back to LA, promise. Like that's, that's what we'll do. I mean, three months in, she was 100% sold. Like now going back to LA is like, yeah, I wanna go see my family, but man, it sucks to have to go to LA to do it, right? Like it's, once you're, once you're here in the mountains and the, you know, nature and the air and the no traffic and yeah, it, it gets, it gets really hard. So, but yeah, selfishly, I think, you know, there, I, I, I don't think there's anywhere better in the U S to live for mountain biking than park city. Like if that's what you prioritize, I don't think there's any place that's got more variety, more miles of trail you know, British color, uh, Whistler would probably be, you know, give it a run for its money, but it's not in the U S so. Have you been to Bentonville? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I've not, but that is, I'd say at the top of my list is, is going to Bentonville for sure. Um, my, I've heard amazing things about it and, and hopefully I'll get there this year. Um, I'm just, I'm just, kind of assuming it doesn't have like the massive vistas that you get in, in Utah and the mountain West. It doesn't. I've been there. I started going there in 2016, kind of as a, it was really a, a buddy of mine had reached out and he's like, Hey, another friend of ours talking about going to Moab this fall. Let's, let's go to Moab. And I was like, well, you know, it's 24 hour drive or so from La Crosse, Wisconsin. I'm like, I've been hearing this stuff about Bentonville and that's only 10 hours away. You know, so that's a couple, couple more days of riding a day on either end. Right. When you're driving there and like, let's go try out Bentonville. And this was right around the time that this was actually was the same time that Imba was doing their world summit, you know, in Bentonville. And like, they have to have, if Imba's having a world summit there, there has to be something there to ride. Right. And I, it's gotten way bigger since then. And so it's, it's a pretty cool place. You couldn't do what they're doing. I don't know of any other community that could do it because I don't know of any other foundation that'd be willing to invest what has been invested there. Yeah. They got a lot of money to invest, right? But let's go to Park City. So that's, that's really where I was going with that. Uh, you know, Park City, truthfully, like you said, is, I mean, it is probably the, what you would call, if there was such a thing, Trail Town USA. You know, I mean, you look at, you look at their foundation, they have the, the Mountain Trails Foundation is their, I think their big nonprofit. And I remember uh, when I was doing some research for my local organization, I came across a, a logo from the Mountain Trails Foundation that said, my garage is my trailhead. Ah, that's a good one. Yeah, it is. You know, so let's, uh, let's talk about Park City because really the whole point of 
of this show or this podcast in general is the trail effect. And that's the effect that trails have on communities. And so let's, let's dig into park city and trails and, and kind of why you put that in your short list of a place to go aside from the fact that it is, a, it is a ski town as well. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the thing that you say about park city is, you know, come for the winter, stay for the summer, right? Like the, and, and the more I've been here six years now and the longer I live here, the more I can't wait for winter to be over, you know, like I, I came here kind of equally, you know, looking to snowboard and, and the winter and mountain bike in the summer. And now I'm just like, okay, I'm, you know, after a few days of snowboarding, I'm like, okay, we can, we can get back to mountain bike season now because, and it, yeah, a lot of the guys here say like, and also the, the skiing in park city definitely isn't on the level of the cottonwoods, like your Alta and snowbird. So, you know, the, the, the immediate skiing also isn't, isn't that big, but the guys that say like park city mountain biking is like Alta and snowbird skiing. Like, like that's, it, it's on that level. It's, it's 500 miles of single track that is built and maintained, you know, on a regular basis by the, the town and the mountain trails foundation. You know, I mean, there's people whose full-time job is just to build and maintain trails. Right. Like, so that, and, and it's, it's buff. It, there's, you know, just, just endless, endless options. Like you just never get sick of it. You can just do a nice, you know, flat single track day on, you know, what on like, tons of like roadie single track, you know, where it's just like buff, like pavement, or you can go up onto the ski resorts, do tons of climbing with big ass descents, or you can go to Deer Valley and, you know, ride the chairlift and ride a, you know, a pretty decent, you know, bike park. It's certainly not on Whistler's level, um, but it's getting there and it's got, you know, some killer flow trails. So there's, it's, I mean, I go to Moab and I like, and I'm like looking forward to getting back to Park City. Let's dive into that a little bit more because one of the arguments that I've heard from at least people locally where I live is why would somebody want to pay to ride their mountain bike at a place that offers say lift service or even just a bike park? And it might be no lift service pedal up bike park because those are now becoming a thing as well. When you live in a community that has as many miles as park city, yet you still have deer Valley as a pay to play bike park. Like let's, let's dig into the differences of those and why they actually complement each other. Well, I mean, I, I, I didn't have a, I didn't have a downhill bike before I moved to Park City, you know, so I got a downhill bike and, and I'm just, I, my, my like bike philosophy, I mean, I have a lot of bikes. I'm very fortunate to have a, have a pretty large quiver of bikes and I'm just all about having the right bike for the right ride. Every single ride that I do, whether it's a road ride a gravel ride or some kind of mountain bike ride. And, uh, so I got a downhill bike and people are like, well, you don't, you don't need a downhill bike for Deer Valley. You know, it's really not that burly. I'm like, but it's a hell of a lot more fun on a downhill bike, you know, with 200 mil of travel and super raked out, you know, like you have so much, you know, room for error to really hang it out. So like, if you can ride a downhill bike, I think you should ride a downhill bike. There's, there's no reason to have to, you're never pedaling, but yeah, the, you know, they are, there's just like, there's the, the tidal wave trail, there's uh tsunami undertow. Like these are, um, you know, these are Whistler level flow trails because they're built by, um, gravity logic. That's it. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. So these are gravity logic trails. I mean, they're, they're primo trails and, you know, I, I will occasionally ride up from the park city side, you know, just do a big ride and, you know, come down one of them at the end of the day. Right. So they're, they are open to the public if you want to pedal up, you know, so it's not like pay to play and like closed off, you know, it's, it's fully open, but to, you know, be able to go there and just bang out, you know, 10 grand of, uh, vert, you know, on, of chairlift riding, it's a pretty unique experience. So, um, yeah, that's, it just, it just mixes it up. You know, like some my best weeks are when I do a day of downhilling, a day of cross country, a day of enduro, a day of gravel and a day of road riding, like in a row, like when I do that, like, and I'll, I'll post it to my Strava and, and stuff like that. Like that's, that's the perfect week of cycling for me you know, to do all those different disciplines. And maybe that day of enduro is like a ton of climbing, but I'll grab a lift, you know, at one point. That's the great thing about Park City. It's like, there's even a lift at Park City Mountain, right? And then there's a Deer Valley lifts. And if you have passes for both, you can do these like killer, you know, long rides and then be like, all right, I'm going to grab a lift here to get me, you know, an extra 1500 avert and keep going, you know, and keep climbing. So, I mean, there's, just endless options. Speaking of Enduro, you were one of the first people to throw a leg over a specialized S-Works Enduro, I believe, with flight attendant. Yeah, yeah. They, they sent me one of those things to test. Yeah, and I didn't even know what the, what the thing was when they sent it to me. It was crazy. It came in one of those Evoc cases, and I opened it up and you know, never seen it before. I was like, damn. I'm like, this thing, this thing looks amazing. You know? So I start building it up, and... And then, you know, they get me on a, on a Zoom to go through the whole thing to tell me how to, you know, uh, synchronize all the different uh, SRAM axis parts and stuff like that. And I'm like, how much travel does this thing have? They're like, that's a 170 bike. I'm like, no shit. So, like, I, I didn't even know it was like a specialized enduro at the time. It was like, I don't know. And so I was like, oh, that's great. And, and I mean, the thing weighed like 35 pounds change. You know, because it's, you know, I mean, it's probably, probably the longest wheelbase, wheelbase bike I've ever ridden, you know, that you can pedal. And uh, yeah, so like that, that was the bike that they had me test uh, like flight attendant on. And it was all pretty much all of last fall. And I would, a lot of the rides that I did, I would do, you know, one lift ride up at Park City Mountain because uh, Deer Valley generally closes like couple weekends after uh, Labor Day, but then the Park City lift keeps running. So I would do these, you know, one lift up and then just go and ride the whole top of the, of Park City and then over to Deer Valley and down, you know, the, the flight attendant just makes pedaling a 170 bike, you know, so much more tolerable. It's, you know, the, the, it really does, you know, as promised. Yeah. And I think, especially in today's world, you know, bikes have gotten so much better, generally speaking. You know, I, my background with mountain biking in more recent years was, is endurance racing. You know, similar to your Park City point to point, I target the Margie Gessick, which is, I guess you could say the Midwest version of that. And in fact, both, both races, I think, claim to be the toughest race in America. <laughs> nice. You know, and, and while there's more climbing that's continuous at the Park City point to point, you'll have. 12, any, depending on the course, because they do change it up every now and then, anywhere from 12 to 14,000 feet of climbing at the Margie Gessick up in the UP. 
you know, and as, wow. as Chris would tell you, it's, it's legit stuff, but it's like death by a thousand paper cuts too, because it's climb after climb after climb. It's point to point. It does actually finish quite a bit higher proportionately than where it starts, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Point Park City is pretty much the same elevation start finish. Yeah. And so this yeah. one it's, it starts in, in Marquette or just North of Marquette and it travels basically you'd, you ride all the trails in Marquette County for the most part, you know, which is three different communities. It's Marquette, Ishpeming and Nagani. And so I had spent a lot of time on a truck top fuel or the new, the new truck top fuel, you know, which is, I guess some people can call it a, a down country bike. Cause it's one twenty one fifteen for travel. And then late last fall, I ordered a, well, early in the spring of 2021, I ordered a Trek Slash, which is another bike that comes with flight attendant. My bike didn't come with flight attendant, but it's a 170, 160 bike. Yeah, there you go. You know, <laughs> and so I, exactly. And cause I, you know, I was getting more new Enduro and kind of get transitioning away from Endurance. And I just, I didn't really have a lot of time riding it when it came in, it came in in mid November in Wisconsin. That's pretty questionable for riding. We did get a couple decent days before I had to hang it up for the year, but just about three weeks ago, I took a week long trip to Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee, and it was sunny in 75 every single day. Mm. Wow, and great. I rode the majority of that trip. Uh, five out of the six days that I rode were at bike parks. They were not lift access bike parks, but they were you know, maintained as such, built as such to be bike parks. One of them being Ride Cayuna, which is Nico Malale's bike park. And yeah, a flight attendant's perfect for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and, and honestly, these things are also getting, these bike parks, I should say, are also getting built around e-bikes, you know, with, with the notion yep. that e-bikes, you know, are basically their, their lift. And every day I didn't, you know, I pick up this, this slash and it's a 32 pound, it's a big bike compared to my top fuel. I'm like, man, I don't know about climbing this thing. And, but every day I get, I get home and, and granted you have to take a different mentality when it comes to climbing. You really embrace your, you know, your full, your full range of your cassette. Yeah. Yeah. And you just be more patient. And yeah. And I just, not- every day I come home, I was just shocked at like, I can't I'd look at my Strava, 6,000 feet of climbing that day, you know? And it's like, man, I didn't feel like I rode a 32 pound bike for 6,000 feet of climbing today. And it just goes to show you that modern bikes, especially with geometry and that are just getting so much better. You know, and I, I actually just dropped off a, a dream, a down country dream build to my bike shop, like right, right before we recorded this, I've been working on it all winter because, you know, with like the supply chain issues, it's just been so hard to, to source all the parts, but, uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a one twenty by one twenty you know, uh, perfect park city bike. And, and after riding flight attendant last year, I really feel like that, you know, anything between 120 and 160 is like no man's land. Right. Like I, I, I have, a, I got a 140, 150 bike right now that I'm, that I'm selling and, and I, I rode it for a couple of years and I really never, never enjoyed it that much. Right. Cause it like doesn't do anything really well. It just does everything mediocre. And so I, now it's like, you know, I'm, I'm going to hopefully get a flight attendant bike, uh, 170 flight attendant bikes at some point this year. And so it's pretty much going to be a 120 down country and a 170 enduro. And, and that, those are my mountain bikes because anything between that, I, I feel like is pointless personally. 
I couldn't agree more with you. And when I was looking at, cause I started getting into enduro racing, some people, especially in the Midwest, people are like, why don't you get a, just, just get a Trek fuel EX. And I'm like, it's too close to my top fuel. Like, why would I get an EX when it's just the next step beyond the top fuel? Like I can do almost all this stuff on the top fuel. I need to go further than the top fuel and, and get into that slash. And then a friend of mine who actually had an EX at the time, he was one of the people that said, Hey, get an EX. Well then lo and behold, he gets a slash also. And he had a 2020 fuel EX and now he's got a 2022 slash. And the first time he took that slash out, he's like, I can climb and do everything that this EX could do, but it does everything so much better going down. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's the down country. You know, I, I think, I think like there's probably been, on, I think a lot of criticism over the, the down country, you know, is this just the bike industry trying to, you know, sell us another category of bike, but I think it's something we've been striving for for years. And now the technology is there to really have a 120 fork that can like, you know, rail downhill and, and, and uh, rear shocks that don't have to have, you know, a ton of external, you know, reservoirs that still work. So you can lighten the thing up um, and, you know, kind of climb like a cross country bike, but then, you know, really fly downhill. So I, I think, down country speaks to me for sure. You know, it might be, it might be marketing speak, but that's, that's where I feel most comfortable, you know, unless, you know, again, unless I'm just going to suffer up the climbs, you know, take my time on a, on an enduro bike to really hammer the descents, right. And really kind of take risks. Yeah, for sure. Let's get into psychology FM. You know, you've had, it was funny. So when I, you know, when I found Psychology FM, I'm looking at the guests that you've had on there. I believe you had, you've had 15 episodes, maybe 16, including episode zero with Chris Gaber, which I love that you started with episode zero too, because that was perfect for yeah. his, for him. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, you've had, I mean, you've, you've had a really diverse offering of guests on there. And I, it's, it's amazing because you've had everyone from Greg LeMond to the founder of Zwift, you know, the, the. You have had Jay Burke, who, you know, he's the Park City Point to Point founder. And then my favorite guest, who I didn't even really know about. I mean, I, I guess I knew about her, but didn't really know everything about her, which, which was Ashley Kornblatt. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, I mean, talk about trail effects. You know, she, she's amazing. And like, she's just, she's all about like creating more Moabs. Right. Like all these rural communities should just be building trails. It's like, you know, um, yeah, she she's amazing. She's inspiring. And I've known about known about her for, you know, almost my entire, you know, mountain biking existence. So um yeah, because like I, I have taken a I've taken a break on the podcast. Like last year, I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna try to pick it up here uh this year at some point. But like with Ashley, it was like, okay, I have to you know, take the opportunity to do an interview with Ashley. Like, so yeah, that was, I'm glad you enjoyed that one. She, she's, she's a legend. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for, you know, again, this is kind of getting back into my own personal history. Um, those who really know me know that I grew up kind of without a father. He was obvious, obviously everyone has a father, right? But I was living in La Crosse, Wisconsin. He was living in Southern California in the San Diego area, we'll say. And his, our connection was that he always made sure I had bikes, you know? And, and so cool. while he wasn't really there in person for me, he always made sure I had bikes. And he, at one point of his career as he's had a couple different careers, but one of them was a chiropractor. He worked for Eddie B 
otherwise known as Eddie Borsezowicz. And not yeah. many people know how to say that last name. No. Yeah. You know? Like that, that Ashley's like, Ashley asked him when she met him, like, uh, you know, what does the B stand for? He's like, everybody just calls me Eddie B. Right. Like, <laughs> don't even bother. Yeah. <laughs> listening to Ashley, I guess my point is listening to Ashley's interview and kind of going back into those days and how she's gone from being president of Merlin bikes, actually before that being a, a ski racer, which I, I didn't quite understand how she got into skiing coming out of Arkansas, but regardless. Yeah, Dartmouth. Yeah, it was at Dartmouth. They basically coached her. Yeah. Which is an amazing ski academy in itself. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people don't know that the East Coast is like Ski Academy Central outside of Park City. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, yeah, the East Coast creates amazing skiers, no doubt. You know, and so to, to hear that, then fast forward into, you know, being president of IMBA on their board. And then going into Western spirit and then doing everything that she's doing now, it's just, it was, that's a weird yet incredible journey. So to listen to that podcast, I recommend everybody listening to that podcast, especially, or that, that particular podcast. But like me, you could, you could start at episode zero and binge listen your whole way through and have a couple good road trips in you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, I, you know, I just, I, I haven't found really, to be honest, the a cycling podcast that I can enjoy on a regular basis. So, you know, that was like, you know, part of my motivation to start my own. And, uh, you know, I chose the, the, you know, the spelling of psychology, CYC, OLOGY, you know, dot FM, because, you know, I, I want, I needed a brand that covered the entire spectrum of cycling, you know, cause like I've taught, you know, I'm, I'm a mountain biker. I identify as a mountain biker. Um, but I love all forms of cycling, including e-mountain bikes. So I, I, I love e-mountain biking. I think it's, I think it's fantastic. Um, I don't think it's for every trail. Um, you know, I think, I think there are definitely trails that are, that it's good for and, and certain like, you know, really busy trail networks that probably shouldn't have e-bikes. But, uh, yeah, I mean, cycling, cycling's a, it's a, it's a state of mind, you know, when you, when you become a cyclist. Uh, maybe you identify as a roadie, as a gravel or mountain biker or downhiller. Uh, but I wanted to explore all of that, you know, and so it's kind of reflective in the in the guests that I've that I've had on there from, you know, Le Mans to the yeah, I did enjoy the uh, the one with the uh, founding editor of Bike Magazine, Rob Story, who I mentioned earlier. He's just I mean, he's brilliant. He is just like a, a brilliant journalist, writer, a learned you know, definitely one of my mentors learned so much from him. Uh, and he's funny as hell too, on, on top of it. So I, I, I really loved that episode and, uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's definitely something that, that the cycling industry and needs and, and I, I hope it finds a broader audience too, you know, like I, I, I want to try to bring on other people who, you know, maybe like some celebrities, um, you know, who can and broaden the audience. It doesn't need to be, you know, so kind of inside baseball because I think cycling is more universal than that. Well, and especially now, you know, cycling just in the last two years, as we've seen, you know, mountain biking has just taken off, you know, and so there's just so many more people into it now from celebrities to just regular people. Oh, yeah. The bike boom is real. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully we sustain it. Well, do you have any Rob Reed words of wisdom 
that we could interject with this that you may have, you know, anything, any lessons that you've picked up along the way? Okay. Uh, okay. I have a thought. So my thought is to, you know, find something in life that you can win at. And, uh, like when I was, you know, a kind of a young teen, you know, my sport was actually BMX. So that was actually how, kind of how I got into cycling was BMX because, you know, I had tried basketball and baseball and, and I sucked at it so bad. Like I was literally, I was the kid at the last game of little league that like struck out to lose the game. Right. And it, and it just sucked. It's like losing sucks. So fortunately, you know, I'd been riding my little BMX bike around my neighborhood forever and asked my dad to, you know, take me to try out BMX. And I, I really wasn't good the first season. And he's like, look, if, if you want to do this, you know, for, for another season, if you want me to spend my time and, and money, he's like, you better start taking this seriously. He's like, I want you to win. And so like in between seasons, like I had this hill in front of my house and I would just like sprint up that hill on my BMX bike, you know, basically replicating the, the starting gate. That was the only, only real training I did was just these like sprints up that hill. And then the next year I came back and, you know, just started winning races and, you know, moved from, you know, won eight races in the, in the sport category, moved up to expert did pretty well of an expert toward the kind of the end of the season. But um, I'll just never forget, you know, the, the feeling of winning those races. And uh, so I, I think that's just, you know, so important for anybody, you know, it's like with my kids, that's kind of like how I look at it. Like whether it's an individual sport or a team sport, try to try to find a way for them to win. Cause I think it kind of sets you up, you know, for the rest of your life. Oh, for sure. For sure. And it's, you know, it's, what's interesting about that is you got the kids that have the natural talent that don't really put a whole lot into it, but can do really good. And then what you just described and getting it where it's like, this is my passion. I got to work at it. I got to think about it more and I'm going to make it work. And and if you, if you, if you, if you find that you can win at one thing, you kind of get this mindset that you can win at anything, right? Whether it's, you know, starting a software company or becoming the editor of bike. It's just like, I always had that mentality and it started with like winning on a BMX bike. Yeah, for sure. Well, where can everybody find you? I know you have uh, Max Gladwell for a YouTube site, <laughs> which I was still trying to figure out what that really was or is. Yeah, we, did, we didn't get into that very much, but uh, yeah, that was a blog that I had, you know, before I started my software company, I had a blog called Max Gladwell. And, uh, so that's been my handle. It's been my kind of online persona ever since then. So, you know, Instagram at Max Gladwell, Twitter at Max Gladwell, even my LinkedIn, you know, slash is Max Gladwell. My name's kind of common. There's a lot of Rob Reeds out there, but, uh, there isn't actually another Max Gladwell in the world that I know of. Cause I, I can get the username every single time I want to. So it was a good kind of, uh, alter ego or persona to, to pick for myself. So is it Max Gladwell on Strava as well? It should be, but it's not, <laughs> I might have to change that, but no, I just, 
I, I love those people who come up with like creative Strava handles. I've always just been Rob Reed. So you can find me there as well. Well, anything else you want to close with before we uh, hit stop on this one? No, just, you know, let's, uh, let's have a great 2022 mountain bike season. For sure. We'll get a lot of riding in, a lot of traveling and everything else. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to come on and, and do this interview with me. I think it'll be good, one that a lot of people enjoy because there's a lot of good stories in here. And that's why we're here is to entertain, right? Absolutely. Appreciate it, Josh. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Links to the various topics discussed in the show can be found in the show notes. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing the shows will help create awareness of both the guests who have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself. Also, if you are new to the Trail Effect podcast, please check out our ever-expanding library of episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you consume your audio content. It will ensure you have the latest content by Trail Effect, and it will help the show as well. Please take the time to leave a rating or review wherever you consume your podcasts. This podcast has been made possible by Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and has been edited and produced by Evolution Trail Services. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature in Trail Effect, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.